Father, what we have just declared to you is so beautiful to listen to. It's so poetic to reflect on. Uh, but we admit, Father, that it's incredibly difficult to actually believe and to live out. So God, I pray for those who are with us in this worship service. Whatever miracles are being waited for, whatever storms have overcome, God, that we would find the ability that your Holy Spirit would empower us to praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm very grateful uh, for the artists that God has given us at Lake Avenue Church, our musicians, Andy, that was beautiful, Cedric, beautiful earlier, Rebecca, Jeremy, everybody. So grateful. Before we jump into the text that Chuck has already previewed us, I want to bring just a couple of moments of update. I appreciate and thank you for your diligent fasting and praying as I asked for last week for little Noah Smith, the grandson of Ruth and Robert Legacy, the great grandson of Eunice Richter, and I bring a report that surgeries went very well and healing continues to happen and prayerfully in this next week he will be coming home. So keep praying for Noah, for Stephanie. Oh for his parents. Also want to bring you, uh, just say something that some of you are thinking. Uh, we're very aware, I want you to know we're very aware of the recent Supreme Court ruling around indoor worship. And I just need you to know we have a COVID response team who will be gathering this week to continue to reflect and to think about. I also want to mention that we have not once during this quarantine leaned on our rights. We have tried to move forward with wisdom, godly wisdom, uh, taking all the factors in and know that we are excited uh, to find ways as time allows and wisdom allows for us to come back in different capacities throughout this whole campus. In fact, today at 1130, we will uh, resume our outdoor service and I want you to know that's available to you each week, 1130 in our parking lot as we continue to discern and to decide what getting back inside looks like at Lake Avenue Church. So I just want you to know we have a team of people working on that. And, and the other update, fits in perfectly to our text. I got really angry yesterday around two o'clock because I got a text message from someone in the church that forwarded me, forwarded me a text message that their mother got from me in which it was Pastor Jeff posing on a text message saying, I need your help with something. I got really angry because we've seen this time and time again this past year in our church family with email, with email accounts that are posing to be me, who are asking if you're available to help me with something, to bring cash or gift cards, to do things without ever talking to me. And now they have found a way to pose as me on text message. And I was grateful to be warned. First thing I want to say is please understand this. I will never invite you to give gift cards or cash over email or text messages. I would much rather you just bring them by my house directly. That was a joke. 
But I want you to know, be aware, be smart. But, but why I was sitting in my house getting upset was because of the thought that someone was going to be taken advantage of potentially through this uh, plot, through this scam, through this phishing. Thinking about the dear people in which I love at Lake Avenue Church or somehow are going to think that Pastor Jeff needs some money from them. And the thought that somebody would buy that and bite on that made me upset. And as I reflected why, because it comes counter not only to, uh, to what I believe is right and good and beautiful in this world, but it just deeply wars at the reality of who I try to be and who our family declares we are. Now, I've mentioned this before. I'm going to read it to you all, but we have a quirky kind of family mission statement, a purpose statement. This was formed many years ago in a small group we were a part of. We went through a book and we crafted an identity statement for our family. And so what does it mean to be a Madisich? Well, we are a first-generation Christ-following family, and we are passionate, adventurous, and a little bit quirky. We sacrifice time, energy, and money to invest in our family and in our home so that we can be healthy and we can be a family and a home to those without. Our friendships and livelihood primarily come out of our commitment to our church and to its ministries, and we value hospitality, generosity, and friendship. When that identity begins to be compromised, when that identity of valuing hospitality, generosity, and friendship, when our desire to be the people that we believe God has called us to be becomes compromised, there is a reaction that happens in me. There is a reaction that happens in Jenny. And oftentimes with an, a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old who we are trying to brainwash into this identity, when they don't live out this identity, there's a reaction that comes from me. There's a reaction that comes from Jenny. We have family meetings. We have times of confession and prayer. The boys would say they get lectures. When we see them not act in a generous way, and when, they see, when we see them not act in a hospitable way, we pause and we try our best to help them understand who we are as the Madisich family. Because when identity is compromised, reactions happen. And that is exactly what is happening in Nehemiah chapter 5. Let me remind you where we are. Nehemiah is now back in Jerusalem and he has sensed that God has called him to rebuild the walls, rebuild the gates, to reclaim his Jewish identity and the identity of the people of God in Jerusalem. Remember why? Not just to have cool walls and gates, but that was the way in which God was proclaiming to the world who he was. So the nations would know who God is. In fact, this is why uh, the people of God, the chosen people of God, were given a unique identity. Because it was through this relationship that God has with his chosen people that he was to demonstrate to the rest of the world who he is and what his ways are like. 
We learned last week that part of this regrouping and this working, there were those from other nations, those who served and worshipped other gods who weren't happy with the people of God and what they were doing. And we learned last week that they were getting threats from all kinds of foreign adversaries from other countries so to the point where they needed to grab a shovel and a spear so that they had some defense along with their offense. We learned last week in chapter 4 that it's a reality that when the people of God begin to rebuild, when the people of God do what God has asked them to do, there will be threats from the outside. There will be those who are trying to disrupt the work of God. And the most humbling reality is we're in the very next chapter and what we see is that the threat is no longer from the outside, The threat has come from the inside. That it was God's own people, fellow Jews, who were causing conflict for the work to continue on the wall. Let me me be clear about this, Lake Avenue Church. You don't need to go too far into understanding how Christians are viewed in our nation or in this world to understand that as followers of Jesus, historically, currently, reflexively, we get really excited about mobilizing, about the threat coming from the outside. And sometimes we're not as quick to mobilize to deal with the threats coming from the inside. When the identity as God's chosen people begins to be compromised, Nehemiah reacts and Nehemiah responds. And that's exactly what we want to look at today in the text. Enemies on the outside last week, conflict on the inside And I've been at church and worked at church long enough that often the way we digest faithfulness in these moments is we want pastors and churches and responses that are harsh on what's happening outside and gentle with what's happening inside. The title of today's sermon is Shaken Not Stirred. It's going to make sense in a moment when we read Nehemiah give a very graphic image of what, will, what he's saying will happen, what he wants to happen to the people of God if they don't follow through with their commitment on the way they treat one another. He wants them to be shooken out of their homes and all of their possessions. It's not gentle. In fact, I believe if I just preached the message that Nehemiah preached to the people of God in chapter 5, some of you would want to have a meeting and ask if I'm okay. But Nehemiah is the one we're looking at over these many weeks to ask the question, what does it look like to have courageous faith? And sometimes when the threats, when the identity is we, the people of God, the followers of Jesus are compromised, it's when we need some of the most courage and not a gentle stirring, but to be shaken up. If you have a copy of the scriptures, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 5. I believe the screen is going to go through 19, but I just want us to kind of go through 13 or 14. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and to stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. 
Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money and to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews and through our children, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Nehemiah speaking in verse 6, when I heard their outcry in these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them, and I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Verse 12, we will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say, Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And this, the whole assembly said, amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I mean, honestly, can you imagine ending a sermon saying, if you don't do what I say, I'm just praying that you lose everything, and the congregation says, amen. I mean, that's really what is happening here. Nehemiah is speaking a a loud and harsh message to the people of God saying you have forgotten who you are and you are not representing or living the way God has instructed us to live amongst one another. Remember, we are God's chosen people and it's through the way we live with one another and live with God that we scream out to the rest of the world who our God is, who the true and living God is. So briefly today, Let's understand what's happening. Let's understand the fullness of Nehemiah's response. And I pray that the Lord will make connections for you and your life in this particular moment. I want you to see in the first five verses, we see the actual issues, the threats that are happening within the community, uh, the injustices that are happening that God's people are being subject to. The men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and to stay alive, we must get grain. There's no food. This is a time of famine, and the people of God are building this wall. And to get the project done, they were unable to work the fields as they normally would. Plus, 
It's a time of famine. Plus, it's a time of being ruled by a foreign a government. This is not a highlight moment for the people of God. There are significant challenges on being the people of God. And what we will continue to read in verses 3, 4, and 5 is that people were being, as Chuck said, taken advantage of. Some people, just to get money to eat, needed to mortgage all of their fields, their houses. Some had to sell their children into slavery. And when we read that, we need to understand this kind of indentured servitude. The idea that I can't pay you money for that, but here's my kid who is going to work your land or do the work for you so that I can eat. People were hungry. It was a time of famine. They were mortgaging to get food. They were selling their children into slavery. And here is the accusation. Here is the problem. It was fellow Jews doing that to one another. That those who were, who were the people of God who were rich were getting richer, and those who were the people of God who were poor were getting poorer. Fellow Jews making money on one another, taking advantage of their brothers and sisters at a time of difficulty. The word I want you to hear and to see in this that's consistent in the Bible when this kind of activity happens is one, injustice, and two, exploitation. Read through the scriptures and see when God raises his voice. See when God gets angry. More often than not, it's not from the threats from outside. It's from the injustice and the exploitation from the inside. You can know one thing for sure, that exploitation of human beings angers the Lord. Angers the Lord in the scriptures, angers the Lord in this world. So whether it's exploitation based on money, on race, on, 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 on gender, vulnerable people being taken advantage of, being exploited, angers the Lord. Now very specifically, this is a group of people who's got the Torah pretty much on the front of their mind. The first five books of the Bible is God's way of living where he's giving his people, he chooses them and he says, this is who I am and this is how I want you to live. And there are so many specific instructions within Deuteronomy and Leviticus that might be foreign to us, but we're very much front and center on the minds of those at this time. Very specifically, this idea, and you'll see it again, the idea that when you loan money to a brother and sister that you aren't to charge them interest. Deuteronomy 23 it's pretty clear. Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. Now, interestingly enough, verse 20, you may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything and put your hand to the land you are entering to possess. Part of that way of living that God sets up, that being this unique people is the way we actually relate to one another in times of need, economic, that we don't charge one another interest. This was being broken in Nehemiah 5. Proverbs 14, 31, and I could do this all day. 
Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. This, in Nehemiah 5, there are people without food. They need food. It's a time of famine. And their brothers and sisters in the same family, the same faith, were taking advantage of that vulnerability and making money off of them. Jesus himself, in Matthew 25, says... I tell you, whatever you do for the least of these is what you do to me. I mean, read all of 25. He specifically talks, when I'm hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you let me in. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I'm sick, you gave me clothes. I mean, Jesus is saying how we treat the least in the society is how we treat Jesus himself. And this, in Nehemiah 5, you have people who can't eat a very basic need. And how the people of God respond to those in that particular need is how they come to understand God. So this is the situation. The situation is exploitation and injustice happening within the family of God. Now, how does Nehemiah react? I love verses 6 and 7. Nehemiah might be the most interesting man in the world because up to this point, we have seen someone who weeps, We see someone who fasts, who prays. We see someone who goes out at night to make a plan. I mean, this is a a very well-rounded man. And what I love about this well-rounded man is in verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was angry. Verse 7, I pondered them in my heart. Notice. Nehemiah's reaction is both of feeling and thinking. Righteous anger. I was very angry. Now, anger taken too far to a place of rage is not healthy, but anger in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. God himself describes himself as one who gets angry at sin, at injustice, And here we find Nehemiah giving us an example of a response. When we see exploitation happening of God's people, when we see injustice happening, that it is a proper and good reaction to have righteous anger. Jesus himself, just off the top of my head, You remember this moment where the people are bringing little children to be with Jesus and all the adults are pushing the children away because Jesus has more important things to do and the scripture says that he became indignant. Vulnerable population, children, trying to access Jesus, adults with power, moving them away and Jesus becomes angry. You remember in the book of John where Jesus is in the temple And he's noticing the money changers, that people have taken this way of worship, this way of connecting with God in the temple, and they're making money off of people. And he turns over tables. Notice in both instances, there are issues of exploitation and injustice. And when Jesus faces exploitation and injustice of vulnerable people, he reacts with what we see as righteous anger. So Nehemiah's reaction to injustice, to exploitation, is righteous anger, but it doesn't just stop there with the feeling. Verse 7, I pondered them in my mind. Righteous anger and reflection were the fullness of the reaction of Nehemiah. Pondered them in my mind. Not just feeling and moving, 
feeling and then taking some time to ponder what is happening. We'll see what he was pondering was a response. That his reaction led to a response. Now Jesus, again, what we see in scripture over and over again in each gospel is a Jesus who moves away from time to time to be with his father, to reflect. So first application point. Injustice, exploitation, when it happens, notice Nehemiah's reaction to be angry, righteous anger, and to reflect. I think there's an invitation for you and I in this day. When we're faced with injustice, when we see exploitation of the most vulnerable around us, it is appropriate and good to experience righteous anger and to reflect. So that we can say with the same kind of honesty and integrity that I was very angry and I pondered what was going on in my mind. Nehemiah, both feeling and thinking, both feeling and thinking for what is happening within the identity of the people of God, doesn't just react, doesn't just take that information and sit on it himself, but then moves to a time of response, fueled by righteous anger, fueled by time of reflection. We see a pretty amazing response from Nehemiah. And I want to have you jump to verse 9 when he says, I continued with them. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Fear of God. Nehemiah's response was to remind the people to have fear for the Lord. For Nehemiah, the fear of the Lord is his filter. What does that mean? It means that what God thinks, that what God says in his word, and what honors God is his filter with which he looks at this situation. What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Nehemiah reminding the people to fear God, to know God's ways, to honor God in this particular moment is critical. The problem is for you and for me is that the fear, and what the problem was, I believe, for the people here is they were not fearing the Lord. They were looking to line their own pockets and to make profit. And what happens for people like Nehemiah, who can be angry righteously, who can reflect and see the situation, oftentimes that step to actually respond doesn't quite happen all the time because we fear man, we don't fear the Lord. Oftentimes in issues of exploitation and injustice, Oftentimes we don't say something, speak up, challenge, confront, because we are too concerned what others might think or what others will say. The fear of other human beings is greater than the fear of the Lord. So when Nehemiah says, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God, what he is saying is make God's ways your filter. Not your economic philosophy. Not your business plan. Make God's ways the filter with which all of this comes together. 
But I know all too well the temptation that in moments to be faithful to what God would say, to be overwhelmed by concern of what others will think. And this is where identities battle for us, the people of God. Am I going my way? Am I paralyzed by the fear of other human beings or the acceptance of other human beings? Or I don't want to rock the boat? Or am I in this moment to be found faithful with what God wants? And what we see is that for Nehemiah, putting the fear of God as his filter gives him courage to correct and courage to confront. He brings up to those in power, those who are doing these practices to one another, you you shouldn't be doing this. Let me confront you. Let me correct us. And the response from the people was one in verse 12, after they allow this person, this Nehemiah, to correct them, to confront them, it says in verse 12, we will give it back. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will not do as you say. The course correction, because of Nehemiah's response to the situation, was one of restitution. More than sorry. The temptation for when we are confronted in, th- in moments of injustice, of exploitation, is to feel sorry for what we've done. Nehemiah confronts in such a way that says, let's move beyond words and let's actually make things right. And we see an example of restitution. We also see this course correction that the people take, that they mark this moment in an oath. So Nehemiah says, I summoned the priest and made the nobles take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. So there's a commitment to make right what was done wrong in the past, and there was a commitment to move forward in a new way. To make, wrong, to make right what has happened in the past and to move forward with a promise of not getting there again. And the people said, amen. For it's not only the moments in Nehemiah 5 where issues of human exploitation and injustice are happening, but it is in Nehemiah 5 where we can see what our reaction can look like and what it means to fear the Lord, how we are potentially the person God is using to bring correction, to bring confrontation, so that we can make the wrongs from the past right and to move forward in a new way. So Lake Avenue Church, I'm not sure what God has for you today. Maybe you, like me, get much more excited about coming up with how to Deal with the battles coming in from the outside. And maybe there's a humility moment here to say, God, what what are the practices that we might be involved in individually, corporately, that that may add to the injustice or, or, or go against your way of living, God? What are those things? Would you show us where we need correction? May we fear you and only you as we go about living. Maybe that's a message. Maybe for some of you, there's some affirmation that, your, that righteous anger is okay. 
And that reflection is needed. And that when you see wrong things happening to especially vulnerable people, it's okay to feel angry. It's okay to have that reaction. But to move past those reactions to help be a part of the change that's needed in this world. What I love about Nehemiah is, and it's really easy to read Nehemiah and think he is just perfect. Keep reading. In fact, I would say I call it this 14 to 19, what we didn't read is this lengthy kind of footnote. Feels disconnected, but I think it's Nehemiah basically saying, hey, by the way, I don't just speak about these things and call all you people out. I try to live it myself. He goes on to say that, hey, there was a time in my life where as the cupbearer to the king, I was allotted so much benefit. I was, I was allowed more food than, than the normal citizen. I was allowed much more privilege than the normal person. And for those years, I went without. So I'm not just a messenger to call out your bad behavior, but I'm someone who models in my life sacrifice of what belongs to me, forsaking my rights, giving up what was his. It's so human to me. It's like a a good sermon where there's a human illustration in the midst of a harsh message. Shake out the folds, lose your house, lose your possessions. By the way, I'm I'm in this with you. I've had to give up my things for the sake of the other. And what Nehemiah provides is an example of that it's more than words, that he's not just talking about these things, but he seeks to walk them out in his own life. And in so many ways, when we really dissect Nehemiah, we get glimpses of the ultimate Nehemiah who will come one day. That these little moments that Nehemiah shows what faithfulness looks like, what courageous faith looks like, all point to the day when Jesus will come. Because Nehemiah spends a few verses explaining that he gave up meals for years for the other. Jesus will come and give up his life for the other. Jesus will come and not just give up some food, he will turn his body into the very meal to symbolize the ultimate gift that he gives. Because Jesus, like Nehemiah, doesn't just preach it. Jesus lived it. And Jesus died for it. Jesus lived for you. And he died for you. Sacrificing more than a meal, sacrificing his very location in heaven, to come onto this earth to give up his rights so that we might be in relationship with God. And that's what we do on this Sunday. We'll have a time of communion to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the one who gives us a way of living, just as God gave the Jewish people a way of living. That through the relationship that Jesus has with you and the relationship we have as a church, we demonstrate to the rest of the world who Jesus is. And there are times when we are living that out where there's very real threats coming from the outside and there are 
pretty much lots of moments where the issues are from within, and it's in those moments that we can turn inward and reflect to figure out what a righteous response would be and to call one another to make the wrong right and to commit to living differently in the future. And it's this meal of Jesus' broken body that helps us remember our hope. So as the song plays, I ask you to go find some elements in your home, whatever you have. If you have bread and juice, if you have water and a chip, anything that would resemble for you the broken body and shed blood of Jesus and hold on to those elements. And after the song, we will have communion together.